Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. Our special guests this week are Stuart Lee and Michael Cumming, who between them have made a brilliant new documentary, King Rocker, about the life and times of Robert Lloyd, frontman of the Prefects and the Nightingales, and all-round legend in his own lifetime. I've seen the film and I absolutely love it, and I'm really glad to have Stuart and Michael here to talk about King Rocker. In Birmingham, they used to have a King Kong statue. What does that represent? Nothing. Birmingham rejected the statue. When I started thinking about the Nightingales and Rob Lloyd and the prefects, I thought maybe there's some way of using images of this to tell the story of you. Rob was my Johnny Rotten. I think everybody who has mainstream success wishes they were a cult hero, and every cult hero wishes they had mainstream success. Ooh, ooh, am I right? Am I? <laughs> it's a sort of charmed life, isn't it? It's not fixed in a time. It's still free, and you were free. I'm, I'm totally free. Gonna carry on whatever they, whatever they say. <laughs> You're in matched up condition. <laughs> that Kong's in better shape than you now. <laughs> so, uh... Michael and Stuart, welcome to uh, the Kermit on Film podcast. Um, I'm delighted to have you on, not least because uh, we're talking about a film about a subject which is kind of oddly close to my heart. Um, Let's begin. uh, Michael, tell us about the subject of King Rocker. Well, the subject is um, a man called Robert Lloyd and the various sort of adventures uh, he's had musically and otherwise. He was the lead singer of I suppose what some people might consider to be Birmingham's first punk band, um, the Prefects, and then with the Nightingales. Um, and yeah, I guess it's, um, I suppose it's a journey that Stuart takes with him, sort of meandering through his life. Um, and as a sort of subplot, we have uh, a massive statue of King Kong. Okay, so Stuart, when did your connection with this story begin i mean how did you start becoming somebody who was interested in rob lloyd and the prefects and uh, everything well i'm i'm a little bit uh, about a couple of years younger than michael which makes a huge difference when you're a teenager obviously because you what you engage with is completely you know massively different and i know the night the nightingales i didn't know the prefects i knew the nightingales from listening to john peel all the time and like the fall they were one of those groups that he played played so much 
that you in the end you will ground down by it <laughs> you had to like them but i thought they were great and um and i was really glad when they got back together and um started playing again because i never saw that actual group the first time around and of course they've been they've been reformed longer now than they were ever formed in the first place as is often the case and um th- they asked me to o- open for them in 2004 when they were first back which i did and then um i got to know rob and um about 10 years ago he asked me if uh, if he thought there should be a documentary about the Nightingales, and he pitched it as being it should be like the Anvil documentary about this unlucky, ridiculous band. And I really liked the idea of there being a, a documentary about the Nightingales, but I don't think they're a joke group. I think it's funny the things that have happened to them, and Rob is a funny bloke, and their lack of commercial success is blackly comic, but it's they're not inherently absurd. You know, I don't want to make a film taking the piss out of them if you know what I mean. Well, I mean it's worth it's worth saying that Anvil the story of Anvil is all I mean Anvil are were a ser- you know a serious band the fact that that's that that film ended up being like a kind of real life spinal tap is partly coincidental I mean right down to the fact that one of them's actually called Rob Reiner or which you which you couldn't make up but it's actually true but the but what there is at the center of Anvil the story of Anvil is a huge affection for, for you know for the subject it's not laughing at them it's laughing with them and as you say there is an awful lot of comedy in what rob lloyd's entire attitude to the world was as we as we discover from the documentary he is somebody who is the first person to mock himself yeah well even to the point where having agreed to want to be in a documentary and asking us to try and make one about him he then doesn't really want to cooperate with it or answer questions and you had to kind of ambush him and take him to strange places to try and inspire him but it took a lot it took a few years to to find people that would want to do it and of course the lucky thing was that i i I'd known michael going on to 15 years but um, it was it was just a sheer coincidence. About three years ago, it came up that he like not only liked the group, but had actually proposed a documentary about Rob Lloyd to the BBC thirty years ago uh, for a strand on a, an arts program. And then I realised that if we got together, we might be able to do it between us as a kind of um, a labour of love, really. So, M- Michael, what is it about Rob Lloyd that 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 inspires that kind of devotion? Why was it that you wanted to make a documentary thirty years ago? Why did you want to do it now? Well, the the thirty years ago one was, uh, as far as I remember, it was just when the um, uh, the I'm trying to remember the name of that uh, arts program on BBC Two had just started. I think it was or the late the late show, yeah. And um, they were look. I was work. I just left film school. I was working at the BBC doing, you know, really tedious little films for Tomorrow's World with no interest in science and really wanted to make sort of art films. And so I proposed that to them, but it was just, uh, and they rejected it, obviously, uh, yeah. along with several other uh, <laughs> documentary ideas that have all now become quite big documentaries but um the, but it was just at the time and it was a fascinating time i thought when robert released his solo album and there was this period where he went from being in this very sort of spiky uh sort of post-punk thing to making a really commercial album and um that i, I just, was just sort of fascinated by that as somebody who'd sort of been to art school and made sort of films for art galleries that nobody ever watched, starting to go into the world of trying to sell yourself and make money. I thought, oh, God, Rob Lloyd's made a commercial 
album that could be in the charts with singles that sound like sort of pop music and that that was sort of and videos and videos that make him look like a like a glamorous pop star yeah a handsome a handsome glamorous well yeah Stuart's theory well you can tell me your theory your Jarvis Cocker theory Stuart well yeah I kind of think he's the the Jarvis Cocker that got away isn't it you know if if they've been (laughs) second uh, album deal if they hadn't dropped them then you could sort of see him filling that niche in the Britpop era of uh, being a sort of literate funny quirky um, pop star from an ordinary background in sort of uh, those kind of clothes that you know suits and and then maybe he'd have got the impetus from that to uh, to do more with it afterwards I kind of suspect not because he seems to as soon as something's about to come together, he seems to want to change it. Or, and unlike the, I think it's only in the last couple of years he's really started to think, wow, I should try and get remembered or consolidate everything we've done or whatever. And that's one of the interesting things about the film is when you see the footage from 40 years ago that we got from Arena of him being interviewed, he doesn't have any personal ambition, yeah. really. One of the things I love about the documentary, and I really did love it. Um, I thought it was great. It, it was found it very moving and very funny. And there was a couple of moments when I welled up, partly because I, you know, I love that idea of somebody's kind of almost heroically um, uh, stopping themselves from ever becoming Jarvis Cocker. This is this is almost like a heroic refusal to allow success to actually come knocking at your door. Um, yeah. But there's a the, the the kind of framing narrative of it is related to this statue of King Kong, which obviously is you know uh, uh, flagged up in the title. Tell us about uh, at what moment did you think actually Rob Lloyd and the Birmingham statue of King Kong are somehow genetically linked? Was that something that you'd always thought, or was that an idea that came to you whilst doing the doc? Uh, well, I. Um... I'd always been fascinated by that statue, and uh, I start. I start. For those I who don't know, for those who don't know, tell us what it is. Describe it. Well, in 1973, Peter Stuyvesant Cigarettes went into a, 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 a program with um, local councils where they'd pay for a piece of, you know, uh, insight art to be put up in your city, and you had it for six months, and then if you liked it, you could keep it. And um, the the one that went to Birmingham was by Nicholas Monroe, and it was a big statue of King Kong. And I think on some level he thought about the city being the concrete jungle and putting because it had all been redeveloped in a seventies brutalist concrete kind of way at that point. And the statue did look really good there. And I seem to remember seeing it for years and going in with my gran when she took a place the ball coupon to the Birmingham Evening Mail and seeing it and it being a real treat. But actually it was only there for six months because at the end of the six month period, but Birmingham rejected it. And it didn't want it, and it was actually sold to a car uh, showroom on the Stratford Road that you used to drive um, past with your grandmother. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and um, I began to think I'd imagined it because I never seemed to meet anyone that that remembered it. And this was before the internet, where you could check things as well. <laughs> um, and, and I met one guy, an actor, who said he remembered it, but most people didn't. You couldn't. Then about twenty years ago. I was trying to interview Rocky Erickson from the 13th Floor Elevators for the a newspaper, and I didn't have a phone at the time, and I went and did it overnight in the newspaper offices. I didn't have a... Couldn't, I'd lived in a flat in a cellar with no coverage, and I did it in the newspaper offices, and I was sitting in this office, and there was a book on the shelf saying Public Sculpture of Birmingham, the book was called. And, um, and I looked in it, and there was a half page about this statue, but it said it had been destroyed. And then and, and and smashed up and thrown away in a sold to a market in Edinburgh. And I'd always had it at the back of my mind that it would be an interesting story to try and tell. 
And then I don't know when I um, when I thought about connecting it with Rob. Um, I know that around the time we were thinking about the film, the f statue had been rediscovered by the Henry Moore Institute. It was still in one piece, and they'd put it on display in Leeds. Uh, and there was a lot of rethinking about um, the value of public art. And I know that I thought of it in terms of here's a thing that Birmingham rejected, along with its 70s architecture, that years later people were like, critically rehabilitating. And I did think about that in terms of a connection with Rob. Um, and I had talked to Michael about it. Um, but the weirdest thing was, and I'd actually written a long essay about that idea, I think, at one point. But the weirdest thing was, when, when we first time we went to see the Nightingales together in about about three or four years ago at the Lexington in, in uh, King's Cross, Rob started doing all these moves on stage like this, you know. And afterwards we said to him, what were you doing when you were doing all that? He said, I was thinking about that King Kong statue in Birmingham. And I thought, is he psychic? Is he trying to kind of mess with my brain? I went, what? And I was quite aggressive at the moment. What are, you, what are you doing? What are you talking about? Because I knew he couldn't have known that I'd been thinking about it. But it did seem to, it does seem to suit him. And I noticed in whoever, the guy that edited the trailer has done a fantastic job of pulling out images of Rob. Where he seems to be <laughs> to look exactly like King Kong. Throughout yeah. it. And then, uh, so, but I think it, it just, um, it just created some other other through line to it, and it meant we got different kinds of footage, different sorts of textures of news footage, and also just about how you know that that statue was hated. The Angel of the North was hated um, in Newcastle until I think the football team, the Newcastle team, won some big derby, and someone climbed up it overnight and hung a massive um, magpie shirt on it, and then after that, people sort of. I took ownership of it. That never happened to the Kong, and you know, uh, and I think the Nightingales have been sort of the same for that city. The, the punk scenes of Manchester and Liverpool, the throw up back on the Bunny Men and the teardrop explodes and the fall and New Order, and people are very proud of them. But there's something self-effacing and modest, and uh, sort of dysmorphic about Birmingham, where it doesn't tend to recognise its own artists. And um, I mean, and so I think. It did did turn out to be a good parallel. Of course, we've got fascinated by that sculpture and that sculptor now. And one of the things is we think, if anyone is interested in this, is there might be something in the story of him. He made a giant Morkman Wise as well. Oh, really? Which has gone missing. <laughs> Which was, I think, was equally hated at the time as well. Wow! It, wow! It was smashed up, wasn't it? Um, it was smashed up by the public. Actually, broke it part of it to yeah. bits. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it, it, it's a brilliant analogy, and it works really well for this kind of larger-than-life character, Michael. In terms of then telling that story, what kind of access did you have to to archive footage? Because I remember when when I first heard from Stuart that the documentary had been made, I remember thinking, I, "Is there that much footage?" And in fact, because watching the documentary, there's much more than I expected. Yeah, there did turn out to be a little bit more. I mean, I I, I was aware of the arena doc it was a fantastic arena documentary by anthony wall about john peel and it focuses on three or four of peel's favorite bands of which the nightingales are one of them so there is some really lovely footage two songs in performance and a couple of interviews all shot in that fantastic old bbc 16 millimeter lovely arena way and i knew about that and i and I couldn't remember whether I'd hallucinated it, but I was pretty sure I remembered seeing them on Razzmatazz, uh, play the kids' pop show from the 80s, playing Rockin' with Rita, which was their sort of almost hit. 
that never quite was. Um, but other than that, I didn't think there would be anything else. And bit by bit, things started to emerge, you know, a little bit of footage here, a little bit of footage there. Um, I mean, there was, there's a few other things that we just couldn't afford because it was really a sort of no budget film in many ways. We had a little bit of crowdfunding and Stuart and I did some benefit sort of gigs to, to raise money for it. But we, there was a sort of limit on what we could acquire. There was, a, I, there was actually a really good pop video that they made for Rocking with Rita, which um, uh, that they shot in Blackpool, but it was just sort of beyond us to get that for some reason but the, who who owns it i mean is it owned by a big company well i think they signed to warner they were at warner's wa weren't they yeah, it was an asset of warner's and it, it may still belong to warner's or have been purchased by some company that have uh, taken all that on and it was but in a way not having that footage you know made you made it as be more inventive and that's why the sort of in a way the king kong thing was a great way of you know, we we had we found some fantastic footage of that, and in a way, that sort of set the period scene rather than, you know, some old clip of them playing in. Yeah, I never felt I, I never felt watching the doc that, it, that we were missing stuff. I never got the sense that that there was you know that there were any holes in it. In fact, I think you're probably right that having to work around what you what you had makes the film more interesting than just a kind of you know clips and talking heads. Also, in terms of the interviews. Um, I know recently we, Julian Temple was on talking about making the the, um, the Shane McGowan doc, which obviously was an uphill struggle because you know Shane McGowan isn't just never going to have a conversation about himself, and so they had to do all these kind of devices. And one of the things that happens in um, uh, in King Rocker is that we see it's 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 not an interview; it's a conversation, Stuart, between you and him. And I presume that was because. You know, you don't want to do a straight interview. What you want to do is so because the way in which he talks is much more conversational. Yeah, he wanted to get a sense of what he was like, and he wasn't going to do an interview. And also, when we first talked about doing this, I watched a lot of rock documentaries, and I thought, and, and my son, who was about ten at the time, kept sticking his head in, and I went, "What have all these got in common?" And he said, "They're all old men being interviewed about things, and then black and white footage of stuff." And I thought, "Right, okay, so we'll try not to make it." So there are some slightly formal interviews the Paul Morley one and the James Brown one. The Paul Morley one, I sort of think, is almost like <laughs> a of a rock It's like, even in this, he's in it. He has to be in it. Well, I can't do it having Paul Morley. There was one yeah. moment where I, I nearly considered, I mean, I, I like Paul and I wouldn't want to do that to him, but there was one moment where I considered just having him say the word yes in the documentary, <laughs> where he, there's something that somebody else says and, and then it just comes to Paul and goes, yes. And then that would have been it. But I thought, no, we can't do that. Again, I, I, I never thought about it at the time because I, I'm, I am sort of used to being me in things. And I, I hadn't re realised as we embarked on it that it was slightly, slightly odd having a me character in a rockumentary. But it isn't unusual for a, a Nick Broomfield film or, a, uh, or an Andrew Cotting film for the, one of the filmmakers to be a sort of personality in it. And certainly knowing the fact that I knew Rob helped to bring out his personality more than a, a you know, in, in conversations more would with a, with a sort of more neutral interviewer or with no one in the, in the shot at all. Cause you have to sort of, he's, he's happy to talk expansively with in anecdotes and witty sayings and stuff, but he doesn't really like giving anything away of himself. And in fact, in the end, we, we, we were lucky enough to be able to get Louis, his son to talk to him. You know, we, we needed, the part of the story where it all goes wrong. And I was never going to get that story out of Rob. Um, but in conversation with Louis, his son, he did sort of offer it up. And um, 
I think that bit of it's very weirdly moving, actually, where they're remembering the missing years of Rob's life, the postman years, as Tank calls it. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, Andrew Cotting, who obviously you've worked with, uh, with Andrew and you know him well. Um, I think I've only actually met him. What is it? We've, we've kind of become internet friends. I love his movies and, uh, and I, you know, I've written about them quite a lot and I get packages from him as I'm sure everybody does with a, with a million half piece stamps on them all over, because for some reason he seems to have the largest archive of old out of date stamps that he's not going to get rid of. Um, and that thing about uh, that, what he does is, you know, it's filmmaking that it is intensely personal, but actually, weirdly, through that personal thing, it becomes universal. When you see a Cotting movie, you know that, that you, you you can sense Andrew Cotting's spirit. I think the first time I ever met him, I interviewed him for This Filthy Earth, and he had a huge gash on the side of his head. He's got quite a big head. And I said, how did you get that? He went, oh, dry stone walling. I thought, that's just, of course, of course, that's why you've got a bleeding head. But that thing about it being a very personal document, I think is perfect for the subject matter because you wouldn't want to see something about this, about Rob Lloyd, that didn't feel deeply personal. Yeah, and we and we sort of felt our way with that as well. We weren't sure exactly at first how it was going to turn out. We didn't have things like researchers, uh, you know, <laughs> things like you're supposed to have when you make a documentary. So actually the first time we spoke to Rob, which was uh, when Stuart and Rob sit down and have a, an Indian meal in, uh, yeah. in Abdul's in Birmingham. And you disturb other customers. And we disturb other customers. Through, you ask them if it's all right, you carry on, which is a lovely And moment. obviously that's going to be in. But um, that was, we weren't even sure at first whether that would even be in the film, any of that. That was almost like a research chat that we put some cameras on and we sort of thought, well, let's see what happens, see what we get out of him. And then we can maybe talk to him again about some of the things, which, which we tried to a little bit, but the, because of it was that first time that he'd spoken to Stu like that, it, it, we ended up using a lot of that. And there was a few moments like that where we didn't really, or I didn't really expect that we'd end up using certain things. Uh, and then they ended up being, you know, a through line throughout the whole thing. So I mean, the thing that was like a cotton film was because there was only me and Michael, uh, really, when something did just happen, 
or it occurred to Rob or he remembered something, we were able as this mobile unit to deviate and go and try and find out about it and pick it up. It wasn't locked into a, a schedule. And, so, and a lot of things only came up in the closing moments. So this whole story about Danny Fields and the Ramones having been friends with him when he was sort of 17, just we found out about We were already nearly, you know, laying it off, basically, and it came up. Then... Um, then other things, Simon Munnery, the comedian, always says all works are work in progress. They're never finished, they're just abandoned. And since we finished it, things have come up. The other day, Rob sent me an email saying, oh, look at this. And it was a video him and Stephen Wells had shot for um, uh, Skunk and Ancy, the sort of early 90s kind of metal band. And uh, they, and, and um, in it, um, Stephen and Rob, who are both in the film, characters in the film, and Ted Chippington, who's in the film, were extras uh, in a black and white sequence in which they escorted Jesus through a crowd of reporters. And I said, so you're telling me you've got a film of you, Ted and Stephen, dressed as <laughs> reporters, escorting Jesus through a crowd of reporters. And you've just remembered this, because of course it's exactly the sort of thing you could have dropped in. And then right towards the end, we found out that he and Tank, the guitarist, had been on the Sc uh, Scottish folk fiddler Ali Baines folk programme, which was recorded on a barge in the Clyde in 1990. And a done something so mad that the footage was never shown <laughs> i don't know what it was and that footage i couldn't find it I'm, I, I wrote to people at stv and i got i found the director of it but no one knew what had happened to it so that's out there somewhere and you kind of um you do think about the things that you've missed but on the other hand the limitation meant that we didn't end up making one of these sort of 12-hour documentaries about the eagles and it's got a it's got a, a narrative through line to it yeah it's got an arc it's got an arc you know, people who don't know anything about this kind of musical these people it's a story about a person if he's got anything it's got an arc but but but, it, but you know i know it, it, i know it always sounds like a drive but it has it has got an arc to it i mean i think that that scene at the end and there is a, there's a lovely moment when you're there with the statue and you deliberately walk out of shot to let rob you know have whatever that moment is I was in tears. I mean, I just thought that was really moving. There's also well, the, the peculiar thing about the documentary is this. Although Robert Lloyd may not be a, a household name, um, people who love uh, Prefix and Nightingales absolutely are, you know, completely devoted. Also, I think people will find, oh, that's the connection. Because, I, Stuart, you and I have emailed each other a little bit since I watched the doc. And I said, of course, I've got a weird personal connection to this, which is that... In the mid '80s or the '80s, one of the bands, my favourite bands, was was Toxic Shock, and Toxic Shock were these two two women who were on Vindaloo Records, which of course is was Rob's record label. And I, they made two brilliant EPs, um, which I absolutely loved. And then after they stopped playing together, I very briefly came down to Birmingham and played guitar very badly. For you see, I didn't know that at all. No, but of course, but, but why would you? But the but the the weird thing is that you said, oh yeah, and then somebody else I spoke to said, oh there was this connection through this, and somebody else I spoke to said, this. and actually for somebody who sort of seems to have gone under the radar for some popular culture, the tendrils mm. of what Rob Lloyd has done have gone everywhere. I mean, I will go to my grave being thankful to Vindaloo Records for making those two Toxic Shock EPs, which I think are among the two finest records I have ever owned. Well, a lot of people um, were, were connected to him that we couldn't get to speak to as well, um, like uh, 
I mean, um, well, we wanted to talk to Pete Shelley actually as well, because from the Buzzcocks, because there was a period, according to some sources, where Rob was going to replace Howard Devoto in the Buzzcocks, but then Pete Shelley died before we could talk to him, and uh, you know, Julie Christie, we wanted to talk to yeah. because apparently he talked to her every day when he delivered her mail. I mean, there were all kinds of strange overlaps. But, but talking um, about the Vindaloo yeah. connection, I mean, Stu Stuart himself has said, well, he says it in the film, you know, he was inspired to to um, to, to start doing stand-up because of Ted Chippington on the Vindaloo label um, one night yeah. in, at a gig, you know. Yeah. I absolutely wouldn't be doing it without without that. Um, I mean, that because of that amazing thing about, because the period that, you know, that I was connected to this, I remember what happened was Fuzzbox's first EP had come out on Vindaloo and there was some suggestion that this this was about to be something really big and then the next thing you knew they were on top of the pops doing International Rescue and this all appeared to happen in, in a very sort of brief period of time but there was this period when there was them, Ted Chippington, Toxics, you know, Nightingale, there was this kind of gr group of people who were just on the brink of stuff, and I was just before that, and then, and then the next thing I remember was suddenly they were all on top of the pops. And Ted Chippington, who I remember when somebody described Ted Chippington's act, I saw him play live. It must have been in Manchester. I said, "What you know? What does he do?" And they said, "Well, he doesn't really do anything. That's the point." And I said, "Is it, it what? What is it like?" He said, "It's impossible to describe. It's like..." And then they said something like, "Like situationist comedy or something." Because he, I said, well, "Does he tell jokes? Does he sing songs? What does he do?" And they said, "You just you have to see it. He just you know it 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 was indescribable what he did or didn't do, wasn't it?" We were supposed to interview Ted for the film, and he just never turned up. <laughs> <which> was, <laughs> to the interview in Totnes, which is perfect, really. Although I, I'm sometimes paranoidly think that he must sort of hate me because, um, you know, when, when Rob wanted to put out a, a box set, but Rob put out a four CD box set of Ted, which is hilarious. <laughs> when the, there's not really any content at all. Like, it's the whole point of it. He's massively over-documented. <laughs> and um, but I think he probably, he might hate me on some level because I obviously I took a little germ of what, Ted does, which is to sort of have an act that has a critical relationship with stand-up on some level, yeah. extrapolated it out into a whole different thing. But if I'd never seen him, I would never have been the, the comedian I am, and I wouldn't have had the life that I'd had. But um, it was it, his act was remarkable, wasn't it? Because it is really hard to to explain what it was that he did. Well, in the in the we couldn't get him to do the interview, but we had found a clip that left Stuart talking to him that he did on on the culture show and does it, well, how does he, he says something, you know, you say, you know, what we, did you see yourself as a comedian? He says, no, I was just some bloke doing something for no particular reason. Or something. <laughs> that sort of sums it up. That's it. That's it. That's well, it. I, I love the thought of, I mean, I don't know what will happen to this film, but I like the thought of that being seen in other countries or in America <laughs> or whatever. What was, what was that? And what, but also what culture was able to support it? And I think in some ways, you know, it's a love letter to a missing time, weird window, uh, where, where there was a degree of freedom for people, and you could live in a, a squat or go on enterprise allowance or the dole and make your art. And then things started to get crunched down a bit in the nineties, and now this seems an incredible time. There wasn't the internet, and people couldn't post stuff up on YouTube and get spotted like that. But there seemed to be an amazing, uh, amazing freedom that allowed people to do all sorts of things. And so, in a way, it's it's a it's an elegy for that. But what, what you said about it having an arc to it, I mean, it, it's, it, it, it was, there was an obvious 
obviously you're trying to organize a person's life into a story and one of the nice things about the film which again isn't down to us was that rob was very resistant to that and he could sort of tell when we were trying to get him say certain types of things like when he's outside the chinese restaurant and i kind of want him to say this was quite a bad time he sort of gets annoyed about that and then he wouldn't he wouldn't when he's at the stone circle i'm trying to talk to him about the idea of people being remembered he won't he resists he says it's the most rubbish stone circle he's ever seen in his life yeah and then at the very end when i'm trying to get him to say something that is a capstone to the film he's aware that that's happening so it has it has a sarcastic relationship with the idea of structure but nevertheless it does it when i've when it was finally laid off uh, one of the films i watched afterwards that i'd never seen before when i'm glad i hadn't seen it before uh, was uh, garnet's gold by ed, ed morris a, a documentary about a guy who is a carer for his mother and decides to go to a lake in scotland to find some treasure and I realised that that had the same structure of a person has a bit of success, things go a bit wrong, they have to come back and reach some sort of equilibrium. And of course, actually, it's a it's a Joseph Campbell yeah, structure. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's the hero's journey that yeah. you get in the Mandalorian. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's kind of. I know, and, and what's and what's beautiful about it is, and I know, you know, I know that when I'm say when I say things, like, I know how resistant you would be to that sort of thing. But the thing is, the reason that those archetypal structures exist is because they're archetypal structures, and you can fight them, and you can wrestle with them, and you can disavow them. But there's a reason that they keep coming back. Yeah, because well, I mean, the, 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 the having having organised the material into the shape of an archetypal structure without doing it self-consciously and then going, oh, this works, and then realising it works because it's King Arthur. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, um... And actually, actually, the King Arthur thing is is exactly, you know, because the, you know, the sense of the holy fool and the sense of the loss and the redemption and everything, and also the sense of magic, because this is another thing that I think the documentary captures. I'm not just blowing smoke up your ass which incidentally is a phrase i've never really understood i've never thought i've never really understood why that's why how would you praise somebody by blow, I, i've yeah. never done it i don't know but is i think that it does have a sense of magic to it because even when you're watching even if you don't know anything about the robert lloyd story the nightingale story there is a sense of coincidence of things happening almost kind of you know alchemically that if you wrote them down as a fiction, someone would go, "That's overdoing it." That yeah. you know, that th there there isn't any way that that would happen. I mean, the very fact that there was this sudden moment of you know, fuzzbox on top of the pops and Ted Chippington on razzmatazz. I mean, I was in a band in the eighties. We did every kids show going. I mean, there's probably more footage of me playing on Whackaday and Wide Awake than there is anywhere else. I mean, God bless those things. That's what, but if you if you made it up, no one would believe you. And I do think that, that there is a magical thing to it. There is a sense that the documentary captures, and Michael, I think you've done a brilliant job with this, of giving you the sense that you've got a lightning rod at the middle of it. And somehow, for all his reticence, he is the person who's attracting all these things. And it, you know, and the and the documentary, I think, gives it a sense of magic. Well, even the even the well, even the again by coincidence, the story, you know, King the King Kong statue story is sort of in a way follows the story of of actual King Kong the movie. You know, the, yeah. his that that journey as well is kind of interesting too. But you know, these are sort of happy accidents in some ways. But um, well, I just watched your thing about Mark about British comedy films, and you talk a lot about. The idea of the little man being a thing that we relate to, yeah. and, um, and and the different permutations of that character, and uh, Rob, you know, Rob f fits that. He's attractive for that for that reason. Absolutely, 
kind of little man to Norman Wisdom, but he is he's a fighter who uh, wanted to be free and not have to fit in, and he does this from a st- from a standing start with no real advantages, you know. And um, so I think people can relate to that idea of the person trying to have an adventure and follow their dreams when everything's really stacked against them. But also you can't, you can't be Rob Lloyd and do that and keep that sort of thing on the road for all those years without being sort of fiercely committed to it and having a strong work. You know, there's a brilliant bit where you're in his office, Stu, and you know, you're sort of quite surprised how organized he is because he's got all his things alphabetically labeled and his lyrics and his, you know, and, um, you know, he sort of joking says, oh, you thought I was a bit of a shambles, didn't you? But, uh, you know, and, and, and that's the thing you've got to, he is, he is sort of on it. He comes over sometimes as being a sort of slightly shambling character. And I suppose in the same way as Mark Smith would have done, but you can't keep the fall or the nightingales or, you know, that sort of thing on the road and going for all that time without having that incredible sort of self-belief and uh, because nobody's going to help you, you know, most of, what the Nightingales have done up until recently, he, he's had to make happen, you know. Yeah. I mean, the difference with... They don't, they don't have management or, you know, they don't have management or things like that, really. They they sort of do it themselves. The difference with Mark Smith is it seems that the people that work with Rob still have very good memories of him, whereas <laughs> of the 160 people that were in the fall, <laughs> you know... Yeah. <laughs> you can probably find four who say, you know, yeah, it was really good fun. I really, really enjoyed it. I mean, I remember talking to Mark Riley when we were doing the Radcliffe and, you know, Riley show that involved with, you know, asking Mark what it was like being in the fall. He said, well, it was brilliant because they were the fall, but it was horrible. <laughs> you know, it was just just getting Actually, told that, off. That was a nice thing about this, that, I, that in a, and it's good to revisit those memories. Is not Normally when you work, you know, quite closely with people, there are little frictions and things, but this was great, actually, and I, li- I like everyone that was involved in it more, having worked for two years with them yeah. on it than I, than I did before. And I, I think, I, I hope it's a film that people see now because it's got a lot of things... It's got a lot of shots of the outside world, which you don't see much of. It's yeah. got a lot of shots of people in rooms, um, packed together, having a good time, drinking or watching music or whatever, which we don't do at the moment. And also, I hope it reminds people, there's a lot of hot air being expanded at the moment um, about uh, you know live comedy and live music and what will happen to it and how will it survive. And I, I tend to think people that don't know much about it, imagine it all happening in enormous arenas funded by massive companies. But of course, the majority of it is places like the venues that we see in this film and little bands like the Nightingales, half their work would have been in Europe, getting playing to their 50 seater rooms in Brussels or Berlin as well. And, uh, uh, you know, and it's going to really, everything's going to really struggle to get going again. So, you know, as well as being about Rob and the eighties, it's also, I think it's about all that, that level of live art and how it works. And um, I mean, a touring with them made me realize when we were making the film, I opened for them. Uh, for about six months uh, on and off. And, um, you know, the van is not roadworthy, really. It was on its last legs, kept breaking down. Everything's a struggle from place to place. They don't have any of the financial leeway that someone like me has, where there are guarantees from venues or whatever. It's really, really hard, hard work. And they they, they do a tiny venue in, um, uh, in Kent every year a little theatre in Margate that holds about 30 people because they say there's a really nice fish and chip shop there. <laughs> I mean, it's really sort of, 
Boy will go to the basics. Well, look, you, you know, say that you hope people... Can't see him again, you know. You can't wait to see him again. You say that you hope people will see the film. Where can people... Because I know that one of the things, obviously, you were going to be out on tour with the film, you were going to be doing, you know, Q&As and everything, and what with one thing and another, that's not happening. So where are people going to be able to see King Rocker? Uh, well, it uh, premieres on Sky Arts, uh, the new uh, the new Freeview Arts channel, uh, and uh, that will be on February the 6th at 9pm. But we do still hope, and we really, really hope that there'll be some cinemas left and that we can go and show this in cinemas. At the moment, we're talking about possibly September, um, but at some point, we definitely will. Um, go out and, and show it because it's just so nice to see it in a room full of people and get their reactions. And uh... when me and Michael were doing the benefits to raise the money for it, I'd do an hour of stand up work in progress and he'd show his film that he made about brass eye and talk about it. They were really great fun nights. Um, and we did about three of them at Earth, the big old cinema in Dalston in Hackney, which is about six, seven hundred people sold out. And when we showed a half hour taster of what we'd got of King Rocker at the end of the night, people were really laughing at where the jokes were. Really properly, six, seven hundred people in cinema laughing at things like the edit where Fra Rob sang that Frank Skinner wasn't in the prefects and then Frank Skinner <laughs> starts talking about how he was in the prefects. And, and um, it, it was, it, it, we've both worked in comedy all our lives, so we, had a, we really have a sense on just a practical level of how to make a film like that funny. And it was brilliant seeing it. It reminded me of being a kid and going to see Airplane in a full cinema in Birmingham and everyone really laughing at it. And it would be great to get it out there and to be there with it and to see it going down well in a room and to do Q&As and stuff and make an event of it, to try and make make the screening of it an event. And um, hopefully that's something we can do in cinemas uh, when it's over. I think Fire Records, who helped us with it, have the... Um, have the you know we can organise a distribution of it as a, as a piece of physical media at some point, which would be great because there is loads of there's loads of extras which if you're a fan of the group, uh, you'll really like. But so that that's where we are. But the Sky Arts thing's been a real lifeline because it was just like so many things at the moment, it was disappearing into limbo. So it was great. Well, I, I'd very much like to invite both of you, assuming that by the time we get to September, things are open again. And I know it's a big assumption, but if we are um, to come on the, the live MK3D show at the BFI South Bank, we can maybe even screen the film afterwards um, because it would be lovely, as you say, to, to, to have this conversation in front of an audience and to see the film in front of an audience. I've seen it now at home. That's only. very kind of you. And, um, I, you know, I emailed you out of the blue via The Observer and um, I had no idea that you had any knowledge of that time and those people. And um, uh, it's been, thank you very much indeed. Yeah, just to get some response. I mean, no, hard, nobody's really seen the film yet, apart from just a few people like yourselves. And, um, you know, to get your response. And also, we had a lovely, I got a lovely email from Anthony Wall, who directed the original yeah. Arena. Um, I was slightly nervous because I thought, you know, I've hacked his footage around. <laughs> and, and I actually love, you know, some of his films and some of my favourite documentaries. And he wrote a really nice email back. I got a lovely, we got a great email from um, Andrew Salt, who directed the John Lennon Imagine uh, movie which was the first sort of cinema documentary I ever remember seeing and those <laughs> those sort of just having those people sort of spur you along because we're Stuart and I aren't documentary makers we've never done this before this is a bit of a first for us so it's been it's been you know great to 
to have that response. Well, I think I, you know, I genuinely think it's lovely, and I wouldn't have said this if I don't, if I didn't think it. I mean, uh, it's always terrifying when you get an email from somebody saying, "I've made a film, would you watch it?" Because you, you know, you, because yeah, because because what if you know? And it's always a delight if if that it's something lovely. And it, but it, it was, I think it's really touching and really funny, and I love the, you know, I love the way that can. I mean, this is all stuff that I've, that I've told you before, but I think that. Um, the weird thing about the story of uh, of Rob Lloyd is that it it will t- people will realise that they're connected to it in ways that they hadn't expected, and that thing about you saying, "Well, I didn't know you had any connection with it." Well, I think the 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 number of people in the sphere that are peripherally connected to it is extraordinary, and actually, that's one of the, the one of the things I like about the doc, which I think probably benefits from the fact that you couldn't get all the footage that you wanted is it feels like there's more of the story going on outside. What it makes you want to do is to go back and listen to those records and go back and find out more. And, to, and actually, I think that's that's the highest ideal of a doc, is something that makes you want to find out more. So um, yeah. that's all the smoke I'm going to blow up your ass, whatever the well, hell thank you that for actually blow- means. Thank you for blowing it. <laughs> so you'll come, you'll come on the live show, presuming that we're all back in you know in human contact by the, you know August yeah. or September. I'll expect you both on the show thanks ever so much in the meantime as you said people can see the documentary on sky arts from do you say the the sixth nine o'clock sixth at nine o'clock uh thanks michael thank you Stuart, for coming on the show it's been great and i look forward to seeing you in the flesh thanks a lot thank you good night Well, there we are. My thanks to Stuart Lee and Michael Cumming for joining us on Kermit on Film to talk about King Rocker. Thanks ever so much for listening to this episode. I hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed recording it. Now, as ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, tell your friends. Remember to subscribe. Visit our Patreon page. There's loads of stuff going on over there. It's kind of exclusive content. In the meantime, thanks again for listening. Stay safe. See you next week. Keep watching the skies. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.